This is the Quantum Biology Podcast, where we break down the practical health applications of this emerging science, starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us. In this episode, Dr. Leland Stillman and strength coach Jim Laird return to discuss how to adjust your circadian clocks to daylight savings time and how to use different frequencies of light to improve athletic performance and recovery. If you haven't listened to their first episode, check it out. It's episode number two on the Quantum Biology Podcast. Welcome back to the Quantum Athlete. I'm joined today again by my good friend, Dr. Leland Stillman. And, uh, Leland just had a really nice appearance on the Ben Greenfield show. So if you get a chance to go check that out, I would. Uh, Dr. Stillman, how are you today? Are you still feeling the effects like I am of the daylight savings time? For sure. And let's start by talking about daylight savings time and really the effects of jet lag and circadian disturbance, shall we say, on athletic performance. Start with that. Lead us away. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of athletes are, well, people are generally aware that when daylight savings times happens, they have to reset their clocks when they get on a plane and they change time zones, they have to reset their clocks. What a lot of athletes don't realize is this is actually a very well studied phenomenon in sports medicine and that changing your time zones. And I can't remember if it's the East to West shift or the West to East shift, but there's actual advantages that can be gained by having the, the away team travel to you and have to reset their circadian clocks. And this is all because of how energy generation in mitochondria work. And this begs the question, you know, we have daylight savings time for reasons that quite frankly, I don't really fathom. The idea of just shifting the clock doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, but there's actually really serious questions about, well, is it healthy for people for them to have daylight savings time? By resetting their clocks, do we actually change morbidity and mortality when it comes to athletes this is all about performance you know what do they need to know about their circadian clocks in order to optimize performance perform at their highest level so isn't like heart attacks don't they go up by like 20 percent when there's a time when there's a the savings change or, or the daylight savings change i'm stuttering today you know i haven't looked into that but it's one of those things where it's really hard to quantify so how would we study this you know where would it do we compare it to the week before? Do we compare it to the week after? Do we compare right. it to, can't compare it anymore to the time before we had daylight savings time. You could compare it in like, I think some of the states don't observe it. So if you were to take right. those states, I think it's Arizona, like Arizona. You were to take those states and compare them to states at similar latitude, that's very important, right? Right. Um, with similar demographics, similar ethnic characteristics, similar, right, everything. Um, then you could actually get a beat on whether or not daylight savings time actually hurts people. But but daylight savings time, in your opinion, is kind of like jet lag. And obviously people know knows what that feels like. And they thing. know they know what kind of loop that sends them for. But you know, what we're gonna talk about today is is basically light and athletic performance. And you know, I work with athletes all the time, and they're always looking for like this magic bullet. And you know, I when I was in high school, I was reading articles about you know, supplements and all these different things. Kids are asking me about creatine. Um, and I think one of the big things they leave on the table is their light environment, obviously sleep, and then how they can use sunlight or, you know, other forms of light therapy to increase recovery. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we face the same thing with our patients, clients, people who want to optimize performance. We talked about this a lot on the podcast I did with Ben Greenfield that came out this past weekend. And really light is one of the secret weapons that I use to help athletes achieve their next highest level. So the thing I thought we would do today is basically break down for athletes, different portions of the light spectrum that we can use therapeutically, explain the therapeutic properties of each, and then really go into a little bit of the literature and talk about just how deep this literature is. It's actually so deep that I, I didn't pull out a ton of papers like I did last time because there are so many, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of studies on how light can augment athletic performance. But I decided to really break this topic down into how we can use light to boost athletic performance, which, you know, same by the same token, you know, how can light hamstring your athletic performance? And then how can we use light in order to improve um, post-workout recovery and treat sports uh, injuries, which is very important. 
and then talk about devices, gadgets, tools that you and I use and recommend to athletes that can actually help them accomplish this. And then we'll, you know, give people some, our top tips to close things out and then summarize really what we, what we talked about. So let's start off by talking about how we use red and infrared light to boost athletic performance. What's your experience been like in the gym? Well, the people that I can convince, you know, it's funny, you know, these, you know, these little simple tips, like people will take a pill without even asking a question, but you start talking to people about optimizing their light environment or buying like a red light lamp. Um, they look at you like you're crazy, but the people that have followed what I say, um, it's insane. Like when, when kids come into the gym here, they literally run straight over to the red light. Um, my dog goes straight to the red light and sits in front of it. Um, I have a buddy of mine who's been struggling with digestive issues. I suggested he get a, an EMR tech red light and start, you know, having it on in the background. He's got a garage gym that he trains people out at. And I suggested him getting outside in the sun and getting sun on his body and his belly. He's like, my son literally comes in in the morning and turns a red light on himself and, and just is totally infatuated with it. And his dogs and, and his animals come over and sit in front of it. Um, and he noticed like when he started using the red light at night with his son, instead of having the regular lights on at bedtime, he settles, like, instead of taking like an hour and a half to wind down, he winds down in like 10 minutes and his mood totally changes. So, you know, I know this is all anecdotal, but even with myself, like I noticed, you know, once I started spending more time outside, my digestion got a lot better. My sleep got crazy better. And, you know, even the kids that I work with. I see the biggest struggle with kids because they're on their phone all day. They're on their phone at night. If I can just convince them to wear some blue blockers and maybe turn their screen red at night, they come to me and they go, I slept so much better. So, you know, I think just, and then all of a sudden, like, especially in my gym, because it's mostly women, they start talking, of course. And before you know it, all of them have them. And then they're, you know, you know, my, they'll laugh because they'll say people will walk by my house and my whole house is red. And, you know, once they start seeing the results and they start telling their friends and then, you know, poor spouses are like, you're crazy. Um, you know, but the people that have bought into it get great results with very minimal effort. And it's, it's not that, it's not that big a deal. Um, it's just some habit changes and it's so, it's so low lying fruit. Like, I mean, it's so such a low lying fruit and, and so many athletes will be looking for creatine supplements you know, all sorts of crazy diets, you know, or they, you know, they'll, they'll try and, you know, like I want a protein powder, but I don't eat, I don't eat any real food all day. I just eat pop tarts. Um, you know, so I think this should be the foundation, this and good solid water. It's just a matter of for some, whatever reason, I don't know what it is. People are just like, Oh, that that's just either. It's too simple to be, to be true. Or, you know, they don't want to buy into like going for a 10 minute walk three times a day, but they'll do like, a crazy two classes of like interval training twice a day. And then they'll, they'll do all sorts of crazy extreme workouts, but they don't want to take care of the basic fundamental stuff. Cause I guess it's not fancy enough. Right. And let's unpack really a lot of what we just, what you just laid out. Cause of course that, I mean, my experience as a clinician that matches yours. People are amazed sometimes by what they get out of something that seems really simple. Give me the glutathione IV. That's right. You know, I mean, how many people come in? I don't to... want to go for, I don't want to go for a walk outside, but I'll do glutathione IV. And then I want the, I want the face filler injections. And then I want, right. you know, it's just crazy. Right. And they want that underneath fluorescent light while they're on their iPad or their laptop. And then they in, wonder in why underwear. the nutrients are not working, you know, right. uh, because that was what attracted me to this. Initially, I was doing a lot of nutritional work with patients and I had patients who were eating really clean, really healthy you know, whole food, natural diet, and they weren't getting better. And I saw a lot of people getting better who were older, who were not like tech addicted. Right. And then the younger people who were tech addicted, it didn't matter what we did. They just kept getting sicker. But, you know, let's start by unpacking this. And, and what I always explain to my patients about light and therapeutics with light is that there's basically three different areas of the electromagnetic spectrum of light that we really want to pay attention to that have different therapeutic properties. There's red and infrared light there's visible light, and then there's ultraviolet light. So red and infrared light is where I always start. And I, you know, begin by pointing out that, you know, 40 something percent of sunlight is infrared. A significant proportion of it is then red. These frequencies are all 
used in they're what we know to be the most powerful healing and regenerative frequencies. They've been studied in athletes to enhance performance. You know, you can go look at a company like Thor photobiomodulation, which produces a very nice photobiomodulation bed. It's basically a tanning bed, but instead of UV light, you've got red and infrared light. Yeah. And a lot of the NFL teams are buying those up like crazy. Exactly. And you know, Olympic athletes will use them. Professional athletes will use them, and I think they're not talking about it because they want to maintain their edge. They want to maintain. Well, the Russians, the advantage. Russians used light therapy decades ago. Um, We're going to get into that when we talk right. about UV light and vitamin D today. Right. But the red and infrared light really has, I think, gone underappreciated by people, and people don't realize the magnitude of the dosing. Right. So, like, I can turn on this ring light on my desk, and this delivers a few hundred lux of light to my face, right? And it, you know, it can be cold, I can make it warm, but this amount of light is very low and there's practically no infrared light in that in that light. We perceive infrared light as heat and when I put my hand up to that up to that bulb, there's no heat coming out of it. Compare that in terms of its intensity and i.e. the dose to something like my red light therapy lamp that I have in my office and that I use every day, the dose is radically different. Like a reptile I'm getting light. thousands and thousands of times the dose of red and infrared light with this lamp than the average person is. I can get more red and infrared light from this lamp in 10 minutes than probably some office workers get in an entire week. Right. And what I explain to people is that that dosing is very important. It's producing melatonin in the skin. It's helping maintain healthy skin. That means, in my opinion, as far as I'm concerned, it's helping to reduce photoaging. It's going to be used to help produce ATP in people's muscles, and it's going to help time their circadian rhythms and all these different health benefits, right? That, like we've talked about, they're very well supported in the literature. Um, and then on top of that, you know, we have literature saying that it actually improves or boosts exercise performance. You can have stronger. Uh, performance. If you're doing weight training, you can have more endurance if you're, if you're running further. And so for athletes, this is a huge competitive advantage and they just need to realize they're not getting this in their indoor environments. Right. Well, yeah, that that's a, and you know, the majority of the training, I, I think we talked a little bit before this about gymnasts, you know, uh, and, and the shortages of vitamin D that they're seeing in gymnasts because they just spend eight to 10 hours a day inside training. Right. You know, um, it's uh, it's crazy, and and that's one of the dilemmas I have as a gym owner. I've built a business over the last twenty five years that brings people indoors, especially in places like Kentucky where the weather isn't necessarily that great for um, getting people to train outside. You know, so it's it's a we, we you know we're we've built this modern lifestyle that's taking people away from nature, and eventually people are going to have to figure out you know. We need to figure out some ways to uh, to work around that. Right. And these lights are one of those ways, you know, because, uh, you know, as we both know, we have patients who or clients in your case who who are in environments they can't totally control. Right. They're an employee. They're right. working under light. They can't change the light. Uh, and so if they've got 20 minutes to get their red and infrared light during the day. One of these lamps or lights is really powerful yeah, that's just, where, i tell them i tell them just bring the red light in put it on your desk and leave it on while you're working on the computer at least you're getting something other than just blue that's right yeah and so let's talk about visible light which of course you and i talk about all the time with people as dangerous or negative in terms of its effects on health at night but really what people right. need to realize about visible light and athletic performance is this link that we talked about earlier between jet lag circadian disruption and performance right and where I, what I start by explaining to people is that in nature, blue and green light are present in abundance during the day, and they time your circadian rhythms. The more visible light you get during the day, the brighter intensity, the better time your circadian rhythms are. It's also the stimulus for the production of hormones and neurotransmitters. So the more light you're getting specifically in your eye, the higher, statistically speaking, your hormones and neurotransmitters are going to be. The problem is that if you are constantly being exposed to artificial light at night, it's telling your brain that it's daytime and it's setting back your melatonin release, which is then going to run around your body to heal your body, regenerate your body, and really optimize your mitochondria to then produce energy so that you can then perform well. 
And that's why blue and green light at night are so dangerous. It's why we wear blue blocking glasses to block that blue light so that we don't have circadian dysrhythmias and, and disruption problems. It's why we use uh, light bulbs, you know, that are very, very low in blue light and richer in the red, um, red, yellow, and orange parts of the spectrum. And I'm constantly telling people, look, you got to get bright, visible light during the day, and you've got to avoid blue and green light at night if you're going to have healthy sleep for optimal performance. So what kind of stuff do you see with clients in the gym when they optimize those things? Well, they, everything improves. Sleep improves, mood improves. Um, I try to explain it to clients, like think of the sun as a Wi-Fi router that basically is telling your body what to do. And, you know, I show them some of the, the literature on, you know, all these different body parts having circadian clocks and, you know, try to explain to them that, you know, hey, you know, your other people at your work take smoke breaks, you're taking a sun break, you know, just go outside for 10 minutes, get your glasses off, you know, get some light in your eyes, get some light on your skin if you can. Um, and, you know, everything just starts to get better and, and things are just effortless. But the big thing is just, you know, little hinges swing big doors. And if you can just get people to buy into a few things, then they kind of take a little bit more and a little bit more. And they're like, oh, this isn't so woo after all. Um, it's just a matter of constantly having to remind people like, okay, you know, you need to make this a priority. You need more natural light in your life. You need less artificial light in your life. And um, it's, um, it's a constant battle of, of just simplicity and repeating the same things over and over and over again. Yeah, I entirely agree. And I think that one of the things that's um, really lost on people is the fact that their whole body has got different circadian rhythms in different organisms and that shift work, which is how we, we basically, we study the effects of visible light at night, looking at shift workers and any disease you want to look at in shift workers seems to have an elevated prevalence and severity. And it's linked to these mechanisms that all go back to melatonin. So I think some people think that I'm you know, committing hyperbole or, or fear-mongering when I talk about the fact that artificial light at night just causes you to age faster and increases the rates of practically every disease. But in every disease I've really looked into the literature on it, it didn't take me long to find that this in fact was a, was a strong association that academicians, epidemiologists were looking at and the, the data is just piling up and piling up year after year after year. And so the writing's on the wall for, you know, blue and green light at night being a human health hazard that has to be avoided. Let's well, I always, yeah. I always send people, especially women that Texas A&M study on the Brexit gene that shows that circadian disruption equals that gene being triggered. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, you know, and, and the it kind of between is, breast I, and I prostate cancer that, is very, very strong. Yeah. I, I, I even sent that to one of my, my friends slash former clients that's actually head of a cancer center here in, in uh in lexington and mm -hmm. she is like i've never seen this before i know you people know, don't know you no know, they don't and so um once you start showing people some of that stuff and and then once they realize how simple it is to just take a few sun breaks during the day they start you know especially kids if i can just get kids to wear blue blocking glasses whether at school and take them off when they go outside and then wear them at night they start to just feel the difference immediately and then they kind of they're like, they want to know more. And then they, they want to, you know, um, they kind of figure it out and then they start telling their friends and, you know, it's just one of those things where it just kind of spreads like wildfire. If people are willing to at least give it a shot. And a lot of times they haven't suffered enough yet to, to think outside the box. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk for a second about sunglasses, glasses, and light hitting the eye. Because one of the things that I, I see people doing is wearing sunglasses when they don't really need them. Right. And when I, when I start to talk to people about the, what I think are the health hazards of sunglasses, which most people have never even stopped to consider. I always go back and actually talk about the, like why sunglasses were invented because most people don't realize the story. We've always used things to improve the performance of our vision in environments where we needed it. So for example, Eskimo and Inuit hunters would use these, these yep. um, sort of like goggles that had slits where they could yep. see through to reduce the glare of ice of light off of the ice. They could see better to hunt better. Um, different groups will use uh, dark um, pigments to like darken around their eyes to reduce the amount of light coming into the eye so they can see better. We've always used basically uh, tools to augment our vision where sunglasses came from was 
in the 1940s, we had pilots going up in the air, very, very bright environments, lots of glare from clouds, and they realized they needed glasses in order to be able to see optimally, and it gave them a competitive advantage when fighting. This is where the name- They wouldn't get shot down. Yeah, well, exactly. there's always there's always a reason why you attack from out of the sun, right? Yep, that's right. You know? So that's that's one of the first doctrines of dogfighting from World War One is you approach your enemy from out of the sun so he can't see you. Right. And so um, those that's why we have the aviators, right? They're the iconic sunglasses. So then pilots right. came back to the United States and they were in places like L.A. and New York. They were flying commercially then because it was a very profitable job that not a lot of people knew how to do right. and they were still wearing their glasses and people thought these you know they were veterans who had just won a heroic war so you know people picked them up they were like oh this is really cool we're all going to wear sunglasses and you know several when decades I used to be I used to be addicted to sunglasses I mean I wore them all the time and I remember when I started not wearing them my eyes hurt my eyes watered Yes. Um, it was insane. And the funny thing now is it's the opposite. When I go into like a whole paycheck or whole foods and um, I don't have my blue blockers or I made the mistake one time of going to a movie without my blue blocking glasses, my eyes hurt for an hour and a half after that. Yeah. Um, right. So I, I've, I've gone the other I've gone the other way. Now I rarely have to use like I tell people all the time, like if you're driving, and you can't see put your sunglasses on. But, you know, when you're walking, I see people, I go out and walk for about a half an hour every morning and I see people walking at sunrise with their sunglasses on. And I'm just like, why? Like, you know, um, I very rarely have to wear, I'm so used to bright light now that I very rarely have to wear them. Um, On my motorcycle, I have a little pull down visor if I'm driving and I can't like the, the sun is like right in my face. I'll flip that down, but I can count the number of times that's happened on one hand in the last five years. Yeah, exactly. And so that's an important thing to point out is like people can get, say, snow blind. Yeah, uh, like, like if you're skiing in Aspen, right. Right. you know, yeah, you probably <laughs> wear some sunglasses you can actually see. Right. Um, but for everybody in their normal everyday life, you know, you don't need to be walking around wearing these things. You know, you have your sun vi- your sunroof cracked on your car or your window cracked down so you can get some natural light. You know, I tell people all the time, you you know, by wearing those things, you're basically telling your brain it's nighttime. So you're getting your clocks even more messed up, you know? And the analogy that I draw to them is seasonal affective disorder. And when it comes to athletes, what they need to understand is their, their performance is strongly linked to light signals in their environment, because the stronger their circadian rhythms are, and the more light they're exposed to during the day, generally speaking, the better they're going to perform. And the disease that we have call seasonal affective disorder, right, is a is a feeling of sluggishness, fatigue, depression, um, moodiness, listlessness, hopelessness that people get in the winter. Why do they get it? Because the days are shorter and the sun is not as bright. So, what is the difference between wearing sunglasses and living through the winter? So do sunglasses cause depression, fatigue, listlessness, hopelessness? We've both had people who we told, look, stop wearing your sunglasses or wear them, you know, as much as you can tolerate or, or wear them only when you really need them. Like if when somebody comes to me and their eyes really hurt when they take their sunglasses off, I just say, look, baby steps. Don't wear your sunglasses in the morning when the sun is not as bright as bright or in the evening when the sun is not as bright. Don't wear them in the winter. Gradually, people develop a tolerance to brighter and brighter and brighter lights. And then they may experience, as you and I do, this aversion to fake light at night because it's very, it just it just feels bad. And I had a patient who, who said something that really stuck with me. He said, Leland, when I put these glasses on, it, my brain feels like it gets quieter. Like my environment feels like it's just, there's less going on. And that's really a great way of, of expressing it. You're reducing the amount of energy going into your brain. But if you do that during the day, you get seasonal affective disorder. If you do that at night, you protect your circadian rhythms and you avoid this circadian disruption that happens when you just abuse artificial light at night without thinking about it. Well, and don't you make yourself more susceptible to like sunburns and things like that? Because your body, you know, when you're getting bright light through your eye, especially in the morning, your body's going to prepare and your skin is going to prepare itself for, you know, the UV light in the afternoon. Um, Right. And that's... So that's a, so through the eye, that's a, 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 
mechanism we could propose. I've never actually seen that study directly, but you know, we know that the way that, that the sunlight works with the skin is that in the morning you have more red and infrared light and it helps precondition the skin to avoid or prepare it for the insult or the stress of bright visible and ultraviolet light during the middle of the day. And then at the end of the day, ultraviolet and, and, and blue and green light wane and red and infrared pick up again, which would help it to heal. And this is the same mechanism we see with red and infrared light. You can, it, for athletes, you can use them to augment performance and then you can use them to help with post-exercise uh, recovery. And that's something that I think, uh, the, the fact that, that visible light causes many of the same skin, um, causes much of the same skin, da skin damage as ultraviolet light is something that's totally lost on many dermatologists, scientists, physicians, which has led to them to thinking that sunscreen that blocks ultraviolet light is all that really matters. When in fact, people need to be aware that visible light from their, you know, fluorescent lighting, you know, the tube lighting you have in the grocery store, whatever, that can cause skin damage. You just don't get a burn from it. Could this right. be why skin cancer rates are rising despite all time highs of sun avoidance? I believe right. so. And so all these connections are just lost on people and they're really hurting people, let alone their athletic performance. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was in high school, I literally was reading everything I could to improve my performance. And, um, and then even watching a movie like Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, you know, all those bodybuilders back in the 70s, what would they do? They'd work out on the beach, they'd tan, they'd take naps on the beach. Um, I remember Muscle Media 2000, a guy named Bill Phillips, who's now like body for life guy. Um, he had this like get lean for spring break program. And he was like, one of the things you needed to do to get leaner was to use a tanning bed. So it's very interesting to see what was recommended in the past and how that's changed. Um, now here we are in the present where they're basically like, you know, cover your whole body in a giant spacesuit and, you know, don't ever, don't ever look at the sun. Don't ever go out in the sun. It's always kind of sunscreen, all that always stuff, yeah. wear a sunscreen. You know, you're going to, you're going to burn. You're going to, you know, you're going to get cancer if you're in the sun for 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and in the past, um, you know, people, people just lived an outdoor life. So uh, how can, how do one, how do athletes prepare their themselves for UV light? And then how can athletes use this, you know, demonized frequency to help improve their performance? Let's jump into the data on, on vitamin D and athletic performance, because this is very well studied and this paper is a really nice summary of it. I would have done this with infrared light and visible light, but I didn't find a, a paper I liked as much as I like this one for UV light. And so this literature goes back, they say the 1950s, but they've got papers in here from the 1930s showing that vitamin D producing ultraviolet light improves athletic performance. And let's start by breaking down ultraviolet light. UV light is not just UV light. There's three different uh, frequencies or, or bands. There's A, B, and C. UVC, we don't find on our, on our planet invisible uh, in any significant intensity in nature because it's blocked by the ozone layer. UVB light produces vitamin D, UVA light causes you to tan and stimulates alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. And the reason I go into this is that people who think that UV light just augments your performance by producing vitamin D are missing many, many, many metabolic pathways that are stimulated by UVA exposure through a melanocyte stimulating hormone and other effects on your neuroendocrine pathways. But vitamin D is the best studied, and I think it's a really great starting point for people to really understand, because really what I do is, if I've got a patient who's got a normal vitamin D level based on their current sun exposure habits and their seafood consumption, I say, you don't need supplemental vitamin D. You need to keep doing what you're doing. And if I have a patient who's got, say, a UVB lamp, which we can talk about in a minute, and their vitamin D levels are normal, I also say, you don't need to you know, worry about getting more sun exposure at least in certain circumstances than you're already getting because your vitamin D is basically my litmus for your solar exposure. And real briefly, vitamin D, you produce it during the summer and then it's stored in the liver and you're supposed to have those stores that can then be released during the winter so that you don't get deficient during the winter. So if you don't get lots of UV light during the summer, you're gonna have vitamin D deficiency in the winter unless you eat heroic amounts of seafood 
or take large doses of vitamin D. So um, any thoughts on that, Jim? Yeah, you summed it up nicely. Thanks. Um, it's, it's just a matter of, I, you know, the, the thing, maybe you can shed some light on this is like, how come this information isn't more available and out there? You know, you went to traditional medical school, like th this all seems like common sense to me. Um, once you think about it, once you yeah. start thinking about plants and animals, and, right. you know, what happens if, you know, if you put an animal in a zoo, it gets depressed, it gets anxious, it doesn't live as long, it can't reproduce. You take it out of its natural environment. Um, you know, you put the plant in the wrong environment. It's, there's nothing wrong with the plant. It's just not in the right environment. Right. Um, how come this information just is not as mainstream? I mean, obviously, you can't make money off of this like you can by covering up someone's symptoms. Well, you can but and you can't. And so really, what to me, it all comes back to skin in the game. So you have to pay very close attention to what you're paying people to help you do or do for you. So right. if you pay somebody to fix your roof and they don't fix your roof, you fire them and you find somebody else. If you pay someone to analyze your roof and come up with a plan for fixing your roof, then they'll do, then they should do that, but they're not going to fix your roof. And right. people go to the doctor and they say, Hey, I have, you know, uh, I have pain in my eyes when I look at the sun and the doctor says, Oh, well, you need sunglasses. Well, they made the pain go away. Their implicit question to the doctor is, can you fix this pain? Their question maybe should be, why do I have this pain? And what does it say about my underlying physiology that we need to fix? And then how do we fix it? That's a very different question. So it's and really- are people, And are people willing to do the work right. to fix the problem or they just want a quick fix? Like, you know, that's why all these like fancy supplements and exactly. teas and detoxes, people just want to drink a tea every day and they want to keep living their lifestyle the way they are and they want to lose 20 pounds. They aren't willing to actually do the work and change their lifestyle to actually get what they want. And you just have to go back to how doctors are paid and also trainers are paid, right? Like people are paying their trainers to spend time with them in the gym. If you instead paid your trainer for, hey, you know, like if you can get my deadlift to this, I'll pay you this much money. So we, we don't always align our incentives properly. With doctors and, and dermatologists and ophthalmologists in particular who deal with diseases of the skin and the eye that can be related to light, you know, no one's paying their ophthalmologist to keep their vision. They're not paying their dermatologist to keep their skin clear. When they, then they say, well, no, I am. That's why I go to see them. I'm like, yeah, wait a minute. But how do they get paid? Your ophthalmologist makes a lot of money when he takes you to the operating room, which means he has not a great incentive to keep you from getting things like cataracts or retinal detachments or whatever. And that's why when you ask these people, hey, how do I prevent this disease of the eye? They're like, well, it just happens. It's they normal. don't really know. They're like, right. uh, maybe take some zeaxanthine or some lutein or some antioxidants. It's like, that's the game plan, you know? Like yeah. we could put a man on the moon and you can't give me more than just a supplement for my macular degeneration or whatever. And I'm not trying to blame ophthalmologists. Dermatologists right. is the same way. You walk into the dermatology office, they do a skin check. They don't get paid very much if they don't cut something off you. They cut something off you, send it to a pathologist, follow up with you, talk to you about the pathology, have you come back another visit. Boom, they're making way, way, way more money. And so that's something people need to understand. And I've seen dermatologists recommend things like ultraviolet light therapy for people's cripplingly bad eczema, but they don't tell them to go out into the sun. Well, they get paid to have the patient in the UV light therapy bed that they have in their office that they're billing their insurance for, but they don't get paid any money if the patient goes outside and gets the UV light for free. I like to tell my patients that if the sun causes melanoma, then spoons make people fat because it's not that it's totally unrelated. It's that it's not the full truth, but all of these mechanisms are there and they make me suspect that optimal includes and I really have experienced this with countless patients at this point, optimal light exposure includes sun exposure and prudent sun exposure means never burning. And that doesn't mean necessarily using sunscreen. It means limiting your exposure to the sun, to what you can handle. And when I do use sunscreen, I use zinc oxide. And you know, a lot of time, instead of using sunscreen, I'll just cover up or go into the shade because you just don't need to be slathering all these chemicals. And I mean, 
you look at the chemicals in sunscreen. I mean, God only knows what those are doing to people's health. Yeah, you can look absorb right through your exactly. skin. Exactly. And you can look at the toxicology data on these things, and they're not that well studied. For all we know, some of them could contribute to skin cancer. And that's why there are studies where they looked at the use of sunscreen and they said, wait a minute, there's an increased risk of skin cancer in the people who used sunscreen. It's a paradoxical finding and they want to attribute it to all kinds of things, but is a big open question in the literature. Could it be that some of these chemicals are carcinogenic, even though they block UV light? So you're basically, you know, trying to use gasoline to put out a fire. You know, it's not a good plan. So for athletes, what would be your basic, you know, for me, when, when kids come to me, people come to me, most of them are kids and most of them have horrific lifestyle habits. The, the first thing I recommend is, you know, getting the light, I'll get the phones off at night, getting the glasses on. Yeah. And then, you know, you're on your way to school, you got your window cracked in the car or on the school bus, or you're walking outside and you're getting some morning light and then you're getting your, you're popping your head outside as much as you can during the day. And you're wearing yeah. your blue blocking glasses, um, during the day when you're in, inside at school, uh, that's, that's basically where we start. Um, what's their next step as far as like adding, you know, red light and different tools that we can use and then adding, you know, ultraviolet light to help aid in recovery and performance. Uh, so the next steps are getting a red light therapy device, particularly if they're not in a place where they can get a lot of infrared and red from the sun, using uh, natural light as much as they can in their working environments during the day, and then wearing blue blockers at night. Um, what if somebody works in an office where there's lots of windows? Does that That's a big that advantage. Okay. Big but what advantage. about, does, do the windows actually, would it be wise to crack one of the windows open? Because um, yeah, a lot of be. these windows block certain light frequencies. Yeah. So it can be to open the windows, let more light in because they do decrease some, to some degree, your, your solar exposure. Um, the other thing is just to understand dynamics of light in the environment, uh, which most people just don't even, they don't even think about. And this comes back to, you know, not just vitamin D, but like infrared and visible light. So, and, but vitamin D is, and, and UV light are a great way to like study this. This is the moving average of vitamin D levels in patients in a random sample of the population. And you can see, this is old data, but it's basically, and but it's old data from a time when people lived a more outdoor lifestyle and they didn't have supplements and they didn't have you know as much preserved food. And you see very clearly that the levels are highest in September after you've had three months or four months of strong ultraviolet light, these patients were in England. And then it starts to drop in October, November, December reaches its nadir in January and February. And then in March, UV light creeps back in. And then in April, and then in May, and then in June and July, it starts to build back up again. And this is also why we see a decline in seasonal flus, influenzas, viral illnesses. Uh, we see that decline begin in March and April and we see this every single year. And the worst flu months are these three in the middle in the winter where, uh, where the viral illnesses are just replicating ad nauseum. And there's so many different you know, studies that we could go through here that prove that vitamin D you know, reduce morbidity, reduces mortality. It's very important. And one of the things that I always tell athletes is, look, you're, the average person's not eating a diet that gives them enough vitamin D. In this paper, they cite that the average person consumes 200 to 300 IU. I routinely put people on 2000 to 4,000 IU just to get them over 30, which is the most conservative estimate of what deficiency is. And when you look at athletes, as you've mentioned, a lot of them are living inside. So 77% of German gymnasts in one study had vitamin D levels below 35 nanograms per milliliter. If you are working out inside eight hours a day and then going to school or whatever inside, you're going to have vitamin D deficiency unless you're taking a supplement or getting UVB light in your environment. If you're a uh, cyclist who's covered head to toe in you know, very tight fitting clothing and you're wearing a helmet and you're wearing sunglasses, do you really think you're going to make vitamin D in your skin? You can always test it, you know, to find out, but there's a really good chance you're getting to be vitamin D deficient, even though you're outside all the time. Right. And, you know, these papers, there's so many papers going back to, this is the earliest one that they cite in this paper is this 1938 paper where Russians saw that UV light improved speed in the hundred meter dash. And you know the reason that I bring these up is that sometimes the effect is very rapid. You know, like red and infrared light can be used 
you know, to change athletic performance in the short term, like you could use it right before a race or a lifting competition. Uh, and some of them are long-term, you know, and this is another study where they basically looked at people with different levels of UV radiation and different levels of vitamin D supplementation. And boom, I mean, real significant differences in people's scores um, for endurance showing up just from vitamin D alone. So this is the kind of stuff that I cover with people that they just don't get from other doctors and they don't get from trainers and that this is really in their blind spot. And of course, the long-term benefits of this are immense because if you don't deal with these vitamin D deficiencies early, people end up falling apart and getting lots of issues, yeah, osteoporosis, I mean, broken bones. I mean, also the risk of autoimmune disease is yeah. magnified immensely right. if your vitamin D levels are in the tank. Yeah. You know, um, just as one example, I mean, it's a vitamin, it's autoimmunity, cancer, allergies, mental right. illness, suicide. I mean, like the lower right. your vitamin D level, if you're depressed, the higher your risk of suicide. Well, and when I work with people, I always try and find the low hanging fruit first. Like most other coaches, one of the things that separates me from other coaches is that most coaches are, they only have one tool and that's intensity and fitness. Yeah. And that is a tool. It works if you use it properly. I want to make sure if I can get somebody to start drinking a little more water, if I can get somebody to get outside and that makes them feel better and they're not eating as much crap and they're not drinking as much alcohol. If I can get somebody to improve by improving those variables and creating some habits and use exercise to kind of speed that along, if I can use multiple variables to make someone get better, that's going to be much more sustainable. And that person is going to be much healthier and they're going to train with me for a longer period of time than if I bring somebody in who's exhausted, beat up, out of shape, and I just try and basically you know, drive a broken car as hard as I can to fix it. Like that just doesn't make any sense to me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, we, we need to build resilience. We need to make sure the brakes work, the transmission works, the engine works. Then we can drive the car hard. And then we need to do the work to repair the damage from the car. Like a top fuel dragster, they rebuild that engine every race, literally every other race, you know, because they run it so hard, they have to rebuild that engine. Um, and it's the same thing with an athlete, the harder the athlete goes and pushes, the more gas you got to put back in the tank, you know, Paul check calls it working in. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I learned the hard way back in 2008, when I got ultra colitis from, you know, not taking care of myself. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's really difficult to get people to change their lifestyle. But if you want to have success over 10, 15, 20 years with a client, you have to get them to buy in on the lifestyle change part of it, or else you're just going to be recycling. You're going to be trying to get new clients all the time because they're always going to be banged up. They're always going to be hurt. That doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that um, things happen. You know, people have injuries and, and little nicks and things in life and stress. But, you know, the more low hanging fruit you can get with people, and I'm sure the same with your clients, if you can just make somebody feel better just by wearing some blue blocking glasses at night, you know, that is a, you know, might as well start there and, and work your way up the tree, right? Absolutely. And also most people who are coming to me have already tried a, and exhausted a lot of different avenues. So I have to come up with something new because as you mentioned, people, I mean, it's really part of what you said there was basically people can hit the wall with supplements, diet. Most people who are coming to see me are already eating a very prudent diet. I don't have to tell them to stop eating Cheetos and Cheerios and Pop-Tarts and drinking soda. They're already telling me I've tried keto, I've tried paleo, I've tried all this stuff, it didn't, didn't work for me. Well, then we put the blue blocker glasses on them at night and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm sleeping so much better, I'm feeling so much better rest of my brain. I mean, it's just amazing to see the changes that, that happen in people. But let's pivot since you're, since you're, uh, talking about it already really to how we use these things to, because we've spent this whole time basically talking about how to augment performance. But the other side of this is how do you augment or improve recovery from ex from exercise, from stress, and also from injury? Because right. most people who are new to the light medicine paradigm don't realize what low-level light therapy and photobiomodulation, which is red and infrared light therapy, have been most exhaustively studied for is their use as augmentations to the healing process of musculoskeletal injuries, arthritis, you know, neck pain, headaches, all these different things respond to red and infrared light. And we use them all the time in our patients. They have a, you know, a 
sprained shoulder or a twisted ankle, Hey, put that red light on it. I don't know about you, but I'll look up, you know, dosing protocols from studies that got good results. And I'll just tell them based on the light they have, you should use this many minutes at this distance from the lamp this many times a week. What, um, what kind of tools do you recommend? So what, what kind of red light devices do you, you have you tested and you find work and what kind of uh, blue light blocking glasses do you recommend? Um, yes. What have you found that works? So the, uh, yeah, and let's talk about devices then. So I'm using red light therapy, uh, red lights and infrared lights from a company called EMR Tech. And I'm an affiliate for them. And my, my product code is Stillman MD, which if people want a discount. The reason I'm using their lights is I went into the into A, the literature, and then B, the just the options online, because there's a dizzying variety of different devices. And what I was struck by is most people are just telling you what they're selling, but there's no proof in a lot of cases of what they're selling. And people think that one red light is equivalent to the other, which is absolutely not the case. You're going to get radically different therapeutic effects with different frequencies, even if the frequencies are off by 10, 20, 30 nanometers. I mean, microscopic distances make a difference. Right. And so I settled on these lights because well, from what I could find, if someone's selling you a therapeutic light for less than $1 a watt, which is the power rating for the light, if they're selling it to you for less than that, I don't believe that they're selling you what they say they're selling you. Test it and prove me wrong and come back and let me know. And I'm happy to amend that statement. If someone's selling it to you for more than a dollar a watt, they're charging you more than the fair market price because there's lots of people out there selling to you for about a dollar a watt. Um, and so those are the lights that I use because they're the best price for the best product, which I've actually tested with my own um, light meter. And the way I'm using them is very generally because I don't have any focal complaints. I just turn them on for 10 to 20 minutes in my home office each day. And when I have a patient come in to see me, what I'm, what I'm looking for is do they have a focal complaint? Does their wrist hurt? Do they have brain fog? Do they have headaches? Do they have visual complaints? And that's when I start to use different devices in different places and say, hey, listen, you need to use your red light therapy device, you know, on the top of your head, side of your head, back of your head for five minutes for, you know, each side for 25 minutes a day at six minutes or 12 inches or whatever. So those are the panels and lights that I use. I use the big ones because I want the bigger dose because in if 10 to 20 minutes is what I'm willing to take each day. And then the rest of the day I'm on the computer. I can't be outside because I got to be taking zoom calls or doing, you know, examinations of patients or whatever. I can't be outside doing that. Uh, then, you know, I want the strongest dose possible, but that's actually something... leaving it on in the background. Is, is that okay? so I can, I can do that. Um, but as you saw before, when I turned this one on uh, it really changes the optics of me on a, on a zoom call. Sure, sure. And I can only imagine it would be sort of disruptive to have a, to be interviewing a patient in my office and have it on. It's very bright, sort of distracting. Sure, sure. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about that. And if I'm just working on my computer, not on a zoom call, sometimes I'll leave them on. Um, I leave mine on at night. You know, that's what yeah. I use instead of a, instead of having the regular lights on, I, I turn my red light on or I have my red light headlamp. Yeah, um, yeah. What about glasses? What have you found that, that works and what's the best value for the money? Yeah, so I'm an affiliate for Blue Blocks and Raw Optics because I've tested both of them. And I actually just joined up with uh, these glasses on my desk. I just got in the mail from Midwest Red Light Therapy. And these are awesome and they're also really comfortable. And my, mm -hmm. my affiliate code for all of them is Stillman MD if people want the discount. And you know, the main thing is you want to just be, be thinking about, okay, does this actually block blue light, right? And you know, these blue blockers that I'm using and the most important distinction for people is that those blue blockers that you're being sold by like a lot of online glasses shops or companies, and those blue blockers do not block a significant proportion of the blue light. Um, my pair of those is not is not here on my desk, but basically they have a slight bluish tint or they have a slight blue reflection on them, but they're not actually tinted lenses. If you're not buying a lens that's dark red or orange, it's not blocking an adequate amount of blue light to protect your circadian rhythms at night. Now, the caveat to that is if you're living in an environment where you control the lighting, hopefully you are, then you can buy light bulbs that do not emit blue and green light right. at night. And then right. you don't need the blue blockers around those. But most of our TVs, laptops, phones, whatever, they're all emitting a certain amount of blue light, which disrupts our circadian rhythms and, and leads to all these 
problems. So those are the devices that I really rely on to protect my circadian rhythms and then augment my, my own athletic performance, my own, um, you know, recovery from exercise and really just, you know, I'm counting on them to help me live the longest, best life possible. So to summarize, we, we literally, I mean, it's amazing how fast an hour goes by, Yeah. but um, to summarize, basically we need more natural light in our lives, uh, particularly morning and evening light, especially when you first get started. We need adequate amounts of UV to get our vitamin D levels up. Um, we need to block and eliminate blue light at night um, and, you know, protect ourselves with glasses if we can't augment that that lighting environment, which is going to improve sleep, which is going to improve recovery. We need to use uh, appropriate levels of red light for healing uh, and regeneration. Um, anything else you want to add to that? I think that's, you know, 90% of what I do with the patients. The rest is just fine tuning. Correct. And, yeah. and you know what? You don't have to be absolutely perfect. And if you're somebody like I was, who literally never gets outside, just starting with a little bit of more natural light in your life is going to make a massive, it's like throwing a pebble into a pond. It's going to have that ripple effect. That's um, exactly right. Yeah. And that's what and I it's see. Gonna, well. All of a sudden other things are going to start being easier. Like eating better food is going to be easier. Not drinking as much alcohol is going to be easier. Going to sleep is not going to be, and it's just, it just snowballs from there. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in uh, and checking us out. Um, you know, if you have any questions for Dr. Stillman or I, um, we have contact information, I'm sure, shared, or you can, you know, contact Quantum Quantum Health TV. If any topics that you'd like us to, to dive into or any questions that you'd like us to address, uh, we would much appreciate it. Um, anything you'd like to say on signing off? Thanks, everyone, for watching. I look forward to answering people's questions and uh, hopefully working with some people who find this video and want to further dial in and tune in their lifestyle for optimal health and performance. All right. Well, this is Jim Laird signing off and we'll, we'll see you guys next time. This has been the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast. To find a practitioner who practices from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely take a look at the Applied Quantum Biology Certification, a six-week study of the science of the new human health paradigm and its practical application with your patients and clients. We also love to feature graduates of the program on this very podcast. Until next time, the QBC.